Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Wanted to tell you about House of Carbs, hosted by one of my best friends, Joe House. I've known him since 1988, and the entire time I've known him, he's been very, very hungry. And now he has a chance to host a podcast about being hungry, all the things that make him hungry, the food that he loves. It is a podcast by the hungry for the hungry. And it's not your typical foofy food podcast where they're talking about foie gras and all that stuff. No, no. We're talking about diners. We're talking about fried chicken sandwiches, pizza slices, best Chinese food. Everything you, everything you talk about with food is on this podcast and with great guests like David Chang, uh, Chris Bianco, Jimmy Kimmel, bunch of people coming up. All of them love food. Nobody loves food quite as much as Joe House. But listen, check this out. Subscribe right now to House of Carbs wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to the Ringer MLB Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at TheRinger.com, and my co-host is starting on three days rest. It's Ben Lindbergh. <laughs> I wish. I wish I had rest. I had my bachelor party this weekend. I probably set a record for least alcohol consumed at a bachelor party. I was going to ask what a Ben Lindbergh bachelor party. <laughs> it was a lot of video games, a lot of wiffle ball, a lot of ping pong, and uh, my baseball consumption was also limited because I didn't have cable where I was. So I was just refreshing the at bat app constantly throughout the weekend, but I'm caught up. I know what has happened. I was able to see at least some baseball, so I'm ready to talk about it. So we're going to talk about all four series, the the state of the series as we speak now, although the state of some of those series may be different by the time you're hearing this. And we're just going to talk about some general takeaways from the weekend, things we were interested in and wanted to dwell on a bit. Things the, the the automated strike zone showed you, the in-play runs, the, <laughs> yes. the whole thing. Yeah, the magic of at-bat postseason baseball. The sound the sound of ding on iPhone. <laughs> That's the, you know, the smell of fresh cut grass. And exactly. So All right. So let's start with, I think the most interesting series so far has been Yankees-Indians. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's... Uh, featured the two best games of the postseason. I yeah. don't think that's immensely controversial to say. So I don't know. Let's do you want to start with the Joe Joe Girardi challenge? <laughs> I do you suppose want to, you we know, should. I just contributed my take on this to the ringer.com. There's been no shortage of takes on the internet. So of course this is going back to Friday night, game two. The Yankees had what seemed to be a solid lead at the time, sixth inning, eight three lead. And there was what was called a hit by pitch replay showed it to be a foul tip into the glove of Gary Sanchez. This was on an 0-2 count to Lonnie Chisenhall. And of course, famously, infamously, Joe Girardi decided not to challenge this call, even though hit by pitches are reviewable plays. He was, of course, roundly and instantly criticized for that. He offered a half-hearted defense on Friday night. Then he came back on Saturday, perhaps after absorbing some of the feedback from others. <laughs> that that half-hearted yeah, defense is worth right. interrogating a little bit. Like I don't know how much he believed it, ver- you know, versus he just uh, didn't think he was going to lose that game and needed to come up with a <laughs> a solid lie, and that was the best he could do on short notice. But yeah. Yeah, right. So he did come back on Saturday and and acknowledge the mistake and his regrets. But on Friday after the game, and and I wrote about this for for the site, but initially his defense was just that the replay coordinator, Brett Weber, said that it didn't look like it was a play that would be overturned. And legitimately, this was a case where, you know, they have to decide whether to challenge within 30 seconds. And evidently they had not seen the slow-mo replay within that time frame. So it looks very obvious to us at home in retrospect now that this call probably would have been overturned. But in the moment, with the pressure, with trying to get replays relayed without Apple Watches, the Yankees had a, a tough decision to make here, kind of, or at least it was very much up in the air what would happen if they did challenge. The thing is that there really wasn't a whole lot of harm 
too challenging at this point in the game. <laughs> so my take is that this is stupid because managers shouldn't have the responsibility to challenge like this. is Yeah, there's I, that too. Truth like the truth should not be a strategic implement. And uh, it's like really disconcerting <laughs> on a personal political mm-hmm. level that like this is how we operate in sports and in the year 2017. But it, to say nothing of uh, the Yankees got by on another challenge on that uh, double play in the first inning where Edwin Encarnacion uh, busted up his ankle. Um, and like that's that was just two interesting challenges for the same mm-hmm. team in the same game or two interesting challenge opportunities even is just that doesn't happen. And like you get two challenges before the eighth inning, essentially, like you want to challenge everything, like anything that's 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 not like, a, you know, more than like a two percent chance of getting it overturned. And my objection is not that Chisenhall obviously wasn't hit by the pitch. I think yeah, I think the replay showed that the ball hit the knob of his bat, but it wasn't like there have been more, mm-hmm. definitely more clear blown calls that I've seen. It's not that it's that, you know, what was there a 60, 70% chance of that getting overturned? Like what, what could you possibly be saving that, uh, saving that challenge for in the next inning? And even then to a certain extent, right. he should have gotten away with this because how many times out of a hundred does Francisco Lindor come up and hit a hit a grand slam off of Chad Green? And then how <laughs> exactly, many times? Right. And like the Yankees mm-hmm. were still winning after all that. So this was this is just like the challenge is an easy managerial decision to to just pick up on and beat on and we're doing it. And it was really dumb. Like I mm-hmm. make no mistake. This was a very, like it was a really stupid decision not to challenge the, the call, but it's just mm-hmm. one step in that causal chain. Like you don't blow a five run lead with a, as good a bullpen as the Yankees have without several things going wrong. Yeah. And you could even criticize Girardi's bullpen decisions in that game, sticking with Robertson as long as he did and not going to Betances and then sticking with Betances for a really long time. And that was where the Jay Bruce homer against Robertson came in the eighth inning and then in the 13th inning, the single that ended the game. But yes, you're you're right. I mean, in the past, we might have blamed home plate umpire Dan Iasonia here. Once we saw the replay, now we've kind of taken the responsibility away from the umpire and put it on Girardi's shoulders. And to be fair, that's essentially an impossible call, I think, for for an umpire to make yeah. with any kind of accuracy. I was going to say, I, w- I wouldn't have killed Iasonia for, for missing that just because it's... It, does it seem like that's happening a lot more to you? Like the the foul ball off the knob of the bat. Yeah. Because it happened to Puig mm-hmm. later that night. Like, it just seems like that's yeah, happening Maybe we just have better to. replays now so we can actually it. tell when it happens. But yeah, that yeah, and, and of course you can blame Green for just hanging a, a meaty slider to Lindor and you can credit Lindor. <laughs> mm, a meaty slider. I could go <laughs> you for You can credit Lindor for hitting right the home run. Now. But yeah, I mean, this is something, I don't want to say you could see it coming, but the groundwork was laid in a sense in that This has been a trait of Girardi and the replay coordinator, Brett Weber, throughout the replay era. The Yankees, over the four seasons that teams have had replay review, have had by far the highest success rate of any team. 75% of their challenges have led to an overturned call, which is a good thing in a way, but also kind of a a negative in a sense, because that's exactly what I was right. If you're succeeding, you're not challenging enough. Exactly. It's like if a base dealer has a 95% success rate or something, you say that, well, he should probably be going more often. He's leaving stolen bases on the table. And the same thing is true. I think of the Yankees, when you look at the teams that have had the most plays overturned in that four year span, it's teams like the Cubs, the Rays, the Pirates. And these are the teams that challenge the most often. So it's okay because the penalty for challenging really isn't that steep, especially in the postseason when you get extra challenges. And if you're late enough in the game, you can just appeal to the umpire and they'll probably review it anyway. So you just might as well, even if it's a call that could go either way. There's just not a a lot of penalty to it. And Girardi also attempted to justify this by saying that he didn't want to get green out of his rhythm, that he felt like if you 
make him stand around for a couple minutes while they're reviewing the play, then that will get him out of his rhythm. Obviously, whether he was in rhythm or not, he gave up a massive home run right after that. But I looked yeah. at the numbers. I tried to see whether there is any evidence that pitchers suffer after a replay review. And there really isn't. There's like some extremely tenuous evidence that maybe there's a tiny, tiny effect, but not enough that it would really change your decision here. So I think we agree this was a bad decision and it hurts for the Yankees. Obviously, it looked like they were going to take a game that Corey Kluber started, which would have been huge and then had three games to go with two of them in the Bronx and they would have been set up pretty well. And it was a crushing loss, although they managed to recover from it. So the next time someone tells you about momentum in the playoffs, here was a a clear case of the Indians presumably having the momentum here. (laughs) Four or five different times. Like it seemed like both teams suffered back backbreaking mm-hmm. uh, momentum shift. Um, I don't want to belabor the challenge decision too much because there is a bunch of other interesting stuff to get to with this series. But in general, what do you think of like people are talking about Girardi as a as being on the hot seat or the wobbly chair, depending on who you talk to? Um, what do you where do you come down on him as a manager? I think he's generally a good manager. I think he's a, a good bullpen manager. And granted, he's been given good bullpen pieces. But I think some of the statistical attempts to determine good bullpen managing have shown him to be among the best. And just the fact that he's been doing this so long in the biggest media market with not too much drama, especially in recent years, he has shown that he can take a talented team and win a title. He's shown that he can take less talented teams and keep them respectable and stay out of losing territory. So on the whole, I I don't know if he's a savant or a genius or a visionary, but I think he's a capable manager and it will be interesting because a lot of the factors that normally determine whether a manager gets to come back, it, it depends on, well, did the team win? Did the team have a big improvement in wins? Did the team make the playoffs, et cetera? All of that is working in Girardi's favor. And, you know, other than the Grady Little decision and even Grady Little got to manage again, there have been a lot of cases where a manager has made a very glaring costly postseason mistake and has lived to tell the tale, right? Whether it's Mike Matheny in 2014 with that weird Michael Waka decision or Buck Showalter last year. I mean, these decisions are infamous, but these guys still got the chance to come back. The complication, I guess, is that Girardi's contract is up. Yeah, every manager's contract is up all the time. Right. That's true. And and you can fire managers regardless of their contract status. So as Girardi said on Saturday, it, it kind of depends what happens in this series, potentially, if the Yankees manage to come back and pull this out. And I think the success rate for teams that have gone down 0-2 and come back, I think is like 9 for 75, something like that. So those are the odds that they're working against in the division series. But if they manage to pull this out, I think we'll all forget this flub. If not, it will it will linger. Yeah, I think I think Girardi sort of does things like this where he sort of outsmarts himself tactically from time to time. But I, mm-hmm. on in general, like he's the the things that I worry about with managers are like reluctance to play the kids, like reluctance right. to sort of accept empirics. And I don't think yeah. that he's guilty of either of those. Or and just I think to a constant certain extent, clubhouse controversy, that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, you know, he's he's run. You know, near as possible in New York, yeah. a, a pretty orderly ship. And right. that's the other thing is like, I think the the you need a special kind of person or manager or player to succeed in X media market is total, total bullshit in for 28, you know, 28, 29 other teams. Uh-huh. But I think there there might be something to that with the Yankees. Yeah. And I think the Girardi lasting as long as he did. Or as, as long as he has, he hasn't been fired. The Yankees <laughs> haven't even been, you know, he could win the World Series for all we know. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think that's testament to, I mean, not only his ability to, to manage there, but he was pretty successful in Florida under uh, mm-hmm. under Jeffrey Laurie as well. So he's, I mean, the ability to take that amount of crap from above, I think it's important for a Yankee manager. Um, speaking of crap from above, <laughs> let's talk about Aaron Judge. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I've been hanging out with with hot takes O'Hanlon a little bit, <laughs> and I'm coming around to to this Aaron Judge is the worst player in baseball <laughs> perspective because uh, it's a good thing he he robbed a home run critical you know critical home yes. run robbery uh, in Game Three to to the eventual one nothing uh, Yankee win to keep the series mm-hmm. alive. It's a good thing he's contributing on defense <laughs> though, yeah, because he is 
0 for 10 with eight strikeouts and four walks. He is. Yeah, your prop bet for what, 40% strikeout rate for judging the series? Looking very good. Yeah, he's taken walks, of course. But yeah, that was a big play. And it was a big weekend for home run robberies and attempted home run robberies by right fielders, especially because Mookie Betts had a pivotal Mm -hmm. one in Red Sox Astros game three. He brought a home run back. Yeah, Yeah, like hockey bench wall that they got around the pesky pole. The Sox and Judge, were, like he, he barely had to leave his feet for that one. Judge, because he's 13 feet tall, <laughs> barely had to leave his feet to rob yeah. home run bird dog Zach Hampel of exactly of uh of the ball. So like I'm wondering if if we're just stretching the outfielders at this point to to meet the wall. Yeah. Like I want to see like if somebody hits one over the monster uh this afternoon, is Marwin Gonzalez going to grow to be 41 <laughs> feet tall so yeah. he can? They were the, the outfielders were scaled to the walls in a, a very yes. aesthetically pleasing way with those plays. But yeah, so good use of Photoshop on <laughs> right. Major League Baseball. So yeah, Mookie brought back that ball that would have put the Sox down what six nothing I think in an elimination game and he kept it close enough for the Sox to come back and Judge did the same kept the game scoreless and preserved Tanaka's really sterling start and and yeah I mean that's sort of the thing that sets Judge apart from the typical masher is that not only is he a great home run hitter and very selective but he can play defense and I don't know he's not Jason Hayward but he can hold down a corner and I don't know how he'll age as an outfielder with that frame it it's surprising to see him get down the line as quickly as he does and and make the catches that he does as a giant. It's like six steps from home plate to (laughs) to first base. When he was young, Jason Worth was like the best in the world at stealing third base because he'd take a huge secondary lead in like three steps (laughs) and, you know, he's diving into third because his legs are so long. Josh um, Reddick, not as successful yeah, with his yeah. attempt to rub a home run. Poor Josh Reddick. <laughs> Josh Reddick, who's red hot at the plate at the, the first yeah. couple. Now producing offense on uh, on both sides of the ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, volleyball, bumping the uh, Jackie Bradley fly ball over the self-same waist-high right field wall in Fenway. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this is not unfamiliarity because uh, Reddick is, of course, a former Red Sox and he's played there pretty extensively so yeah right so i did also want to give a little salute to greg bird who has been an offensive star for the yankees both in the wild card game when he had a big hit he's had two home runs in the ds including the game winner that resulted in the only runs scored in game three for either team and he hit that left on left home run against the fearsome andrew miller that is not a sight we see very often and I like the Greg Bird redemption story just because I was always a fan of his as a prospect. I just thought he was never someone who showed up high or, or at all on prospect lists, but his performance was always yeah, there. There's no such thing as a first. Right, exactly. Prospect. But he always hit well, especially when you park adjusted for some tough minor league parks he played in. I always thought that he had good things ahead and he came up, of course, and was the original Yankees sensation the year before last. He, of course, missed most of last year, but he was Judge and Sanchez before Judge and Sanchez were Judge and Sanchez. And they were supposed to be a trio this year, really kind of in the heart of the order. And of course, Bird missed a lot of the year with foot problems, but it really kind of annoyed me. There was a a, Bill Madden column, I believe, in July, where some unnamed Yankees insider source just took shots at Greg Bird for essentially not wanting to come back, not wanting to play. And of course, Bird ended up having surgery and coming back and being good again. And I mean, his absence really changed the course of the Yankees season because they had to bring in Chris Carter and then maybe they don't make the Todd Frazier trade if Bird is healthy and productive all year. But just that. No, it's the Tommy Canely trade. Yeah, sure. Maybe that part still would have happened. But whenever you get an unnamed executive just taking shots at a player through the press, particularly for lack of desire. uh, Yeah, or accusing him of malingering. That's particularly. Yeah, it's like he's a young player. It's not like he just got some big contract and is sitting on his heels or something. I mean, I don't know why you would assume that a guy doesn't want to play. I think that for the most part, guys who get to the major leagues are very motivated to play. And if someone says he's having physical problems, and this is something that happened, you know, with an earlier Steinbrenner regime going back to the 80s with like Ricky Henderson was 
accused of not wanting to play. And then, of course, his injury, I think a hamstring or something, turned out to be more severe than the team was saying. And that is often the case when a player says something hurts. For the most part, something hurts and should probably take their word for it and figure out how you can make it better instead of criticizing them in the press. And I think Bird's teammates defended him at the time. So it's nice to see him come back and prove that, yes, he does want to be a baseball player and he has the potential to be a pretty good one. Yeah. So let's um, look ahead briefly. We've already spent mm-hmm. quite a lot of time on on this series. We've got three others to get to, but this series has had three of the five <laughs> yeah. worthwhile starting right. pitching performances <laughs> so far in, in a week's worth of playoffs. And so... Game four is Trevor mm-hmm. Bauer coming back on short rest versus Luis Severino, who, uh, well, the less <laughs> yeah. said about his last start, the better. Uh, at least on paper is the the, right. the Yankees' best starter. So, you know, you got Severino at home against ostensibly the, uh, the Indians' third best pitcher. This looks like prime territory for the Yankees to to steal one and, and go back and, and take it back to Cleveland. Um I don't think short rest. So uh, let me put it this way. I don't think short rest is going to impact Bauer at all. Um, and by the time most people are listening to, to this <laughs> podcast, uh, we will know for certain whether I'm right or wrong. And this is sort of a heat check because I had a yes. really good pr- uh, week for for predictions last episode. So uh, I'm going to going to push the rest of my I'm going to double da- down <laughs> on Bauer. I don't gamble. So I'm mangling this metaphor. Uh, I'm going to double down on on Bauer, let it ride, whatever the the expression is. And, and I'm going to say that Cleveland wraps it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in general, I'm anti short rest start in the playoffs. I think it's a tempting thing to do. But when you look at the history of pitchers who have done it, and of course, it is generally only the best pitchers who get to do it. It's not great. I think guys coming back on short rest tend to be significantly worse than they normally are. And there are definitely cases where it still makes sense. And maybe we'll talk about one of those cases with the AL, other AL series in a second. But I think on the whole, unless it's like a clear advantage over your next best option, and maybe you can make a case that based on how well Bauer has pitched in the second half of the season, this is one of those cases, I think for the most part, and considering that, like the original game four starter Josh Tomlin's pitched right. in relief more recently than, I mean, <laughs> whatever that's worth, you know, the the reliever or the starter pitching on his throw day is is sort of a that's not like a more recent innovation. It's not like the forty nine Red Sox weren't mm-hmm. doing this, or not like Walter Johnson didn't come in in relief and yeah. Uh, game seven of the 24 world series and so on but right and and a guy like tomlin with his tomlin with his home run rate is pretty scary in yankee stadium although you could have said the same about masahiro tanaka and he's had a lot of success there this year including in game three but tomlin in yankee stadium is is pretty scary so i i can't really fault cleveland for bypassing him here yeah i mean tomlin just between you and me tomlin might be a little scary anywhere that's <laughs> I think there might be other people listening okay. to this, but Shit. I'm with okay. you. <laughs> All right. So you want to move in? Do you want to do uh, the other AL series or do you want yeah, to do the other do big market series next? Which uh, Yeah, let's let's stick okay. with Red Sox Astros. All right. So I was at the first two games of the series and I didn't think <laughs> the Red Sox were going to score a run in game three, much less <laughs> yeah. uh, drop 10 of them. And you know, I don't want to say completely turned the series on its head, but you know, now instead of having to rely on Doug Fister to save their season. They're now just one home win away from giving the ball to Chris Sale to to advance. Mm-hmm. So how quickly right. things change in best of five series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you could have made a case potentially for bringing back Sale for game four, just given how poorly the Red Sox rotation has pitched. It's what you just sent me a link, Alex Spear. Yeah, Alex Spear, the Boston Globe said they've got a 15-12 ERA <laughs> uh, in this series. And uh, his quote is the worst playoff rotation ERA ever. So. Yeah, which must be familiar Ever to Red Sox fans time. because, I mean, just going back to last year's ALDS sweep at the hands of the Indians, the Red Sox had some pretty terrible pitching performances from Porcello, from Price, from I think who Buckholtz maybe was the third and he was a little bit better, but they were, you know, three and out in, in that year just because their rotation was so shoddy by the time they got there. And, and we knew that was going to be the concern for this Red Sox team too. And 
Sale, of course, has not quite been his first half self in the second half. And a lot of that just seems to be home run per fly ball rate. And I don't know how much stock to put in that. But of course, he was not great in game one and they really need him to be great. But and once you get into that Astros rotation beyond Verlander and Keuchel, things get a little dicey, too, which is, you know, part of why the Red Sox were able to put up 10 runs despite not having the kind of offense that does that with any regularity. Honestly, I think this goes back to what I said last week, which is that like just looking at at how Sale performed and how Drew Pomerantz performed, like it's they weren't that much worse than Verlander and Keuchel. Verlander, I think the Verlander Sale matchup in particular, Verlander was there for the taking, and the Astros just have a way better lineup than the Red Sox did, mm-hmm. and they got some of those hits. Like Rafael Devers was ice cold over the last five weeks or so of the season. He came through in uh, in a big way in a couple uh, different places in in Game Three. You know, they finally got something. You know, Jackie Bradley turned what should have been a routine fly ball out into a uh, into a three run home run because you know we talked about Josh Reddick already, but just you know things like that. They they were getting contributions from guys who had been ice mm-hmm. cold, and uh, you know, I if you look at the the way that it's like every single guy in this lineup just didn't hit this year, mm-hmm. and if they hit like they did last year, then this is a pretty even series. But I, you know, I think the difference in games one and two was less that Verlander and Keiko were a lot better so much as the Astros hitters were just a lot better to position to take mm-hmm. advantage of it. And, you know, the one thing, the one worry point, at least in game four, they got to figure out a way to get through this without going to David Price again, because he's right. been the only Red Sox pitcher who's been able to get anybody out. Yeah. And I mean, apart from that inning of Porcello and mop up relief and uh, the inning of uh, of Craig Kimbrell, that's, you know, you need more than one pitcher. Mm-hmm. And that's they just nobody but Price has been able to get anybody out and they're not going to be able to use him as much as they used him on Sunday. Right. They used him for four scoreless. He's up to six and two thirds scoreless in this series in two games. And he's obviously someone we were very curious about coming into the playoffs because when he came back from the injury in the bullpen, he had five scoreless outings to end the season. And so the question was, well, is he going to start? Are they going to be so tempted to move him back into the rotation or is he just going to be the late inning? slash middle inning long man kind of Andrew Miller type weapon that he had been in his rookie year for the race. And that is what he's doing. And yeah, you're right. He's not going to be available maybe at all, certainly not as long in the next game. And I wonder if they somehow managed to get past Houston here Given their starting pitcher problems in this series, I wonder whether they will be tempted to give him a start. It's you you gotta put him back in the rotation because you're not getting, you know, to a certain like it's it's tough to blame John Farrell because like he's not throwing these pitches. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you've got one guy who can get an out, then it to a certain extent it doesn't matter where you put him. But like you're not getting more than four innings at a at a Doug Fister anyway. Mm-hmm. Or poor, you know, probably not Porcello either. Yeah. And of course I say I say this, he's gonna throw eight scoreless innings and the Red Sox are gonna win this afternoon. But <laughs> you know, it's just I, I would rather I would rather have price in the rotation, maybe throw him like you know, maybe have him available for an inning in games one and seven and start him in game four, or something like that. You know, if there's a way to stretch him to where you can use him in both places, mm-hmm. but you still got to be careful because the reason he's not starting game two or game three is that he's hurt or he was hurt to begin right. with. So exactly. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's there's not like a moral hazard component to this because Price got paid. But, you know, you if for the Red Sox, like it makes it of paramount importance. Like you want 220 innings out of this guy next year and the year after that, too. So you don't mm-hmm. want to stretch him out, you know, sort of chasing the rabbit when I don't know not to pick on Austin Maddox, but Austin Maddox is just going to give up that lead anyway in the, you know, in the eighth mm-hmm. inning after Price leaves. Right. And even if not for the elbow issues, he's been a starter for years. So who knows how he responds to pitching on back to back or back to back to back days. So it's going to be tempting to stretch him out. I mean, at this point in this postseason, the line between starter and a lever has never looked blurrier. And I mean, before the Tanaka Carrasco 
duel, pitcher's duel, and maybe even after that, I think relievers had or possibly still have pitched more innings this postseason than starters have. And because starters have all been so terrible, it's often been the bullpen guys coming in to bail them out and having to pitch a lot of innings anyway. So in that case, it almost doesn't matter when you use Price if he's available for that sort of long outing. He's valuable in that role too, so it's not like he can't contribute this way also, but it will be interesting to see whether they resist that temptation to move him back into the rotation, but of course they have to get there first, and that is still an uphill climb. Yeah, and that'll be another, you know, it's it's always crisis time if the Red Sox and Yankees go more than a year or two without advancing. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's been a lot of talk about the wobbliness of John Farrell's chair. Sure. Too. Yeah. And so, we're going to talk about Clayton Kershaw shortly, but Price is, of course, another ace potential Hall of Fame type pitcher who came into this postseason with the reputation for pitching poorly in the postseason. I don't know whether he can overcome that out of the pen or whether People will just dismiss that as not his regular role or an easier role, but obviously he is uh, helping his his reputation. I think reputation wise, you know, given as well as he's pitched this series and the importance of those innings, because you know when he pitched earlier in the the series, like he yeah. kept them in that game after the after the Red Sox fell out. You know, it's not his fault that they didn't come back. They absolutely could have. And just as well as he's pitched and there are certain elements to like, you know, they're they're extenuating circumstances to Kershaw pitching on short rest for mm-hmm. for a long time or somebody who used to have that um used to have that reputation like Cole Hamels. There was a lot of weirdness mm-hmm. early on in his playoff career. Price has had a very, very strange postseason career between how he was used as a rookie with the Rays and the just John Gibbons when in his one year with the Blue Jays, getting him up and down and and using him you know, as a starter and a reliever. And it was just that there was just it's like he hasn't been taking the ball every fifth day. And, you know, not to make excuses, but you know, this might be a good opportunity to segue into Kershaw because I'm thinking about, you know, Kershaw giving up those four solo homers and 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 winning anyway. Like, have you seen the the Mystery Science Theater episode where they do Mitchell, the Joe Don <laughs> Baker cop movie? No. There's there's a scene in this movie where it's shockingly because it's mst3k just the worst movie and there's a scene where joe don baker's in his car arguing with this little kid and they're doing like the oh yeah i know you are but so am i think back and forth they do this for like 45 (laughs) seconds and eventually tom servo like you could see the puppet shaking in the the bottom of the screen and and he just goes ah (laughs) and that's what i want to do whenever we talk about i know kershaw or price or now like right Oh, God, who was or Chris Sale, mm-hmm. you know, because that's a thing now. Yeah, uh, getting, <laughs> right. You know, Can't picture the postseason you know, because he never has before. <laughs> just yeah, exactly. Spare me. I know. I just I'm so sick. Yeah, of it. so and, am I. But before we officially transition to NL, we did just want to tip our caps to Jose Altuve. Who is oh, yeah. hitting 727, 786, 1545. That's a 1545 slugging percentage in three games, 14 plate appearances, three home runs, of course. And I mean, it's not news to anyone that Jose Altuve is amazing. He was probably the best player in the major leagues this year, certainly right up there at the top of the league with Judge, probably the MVP favorite. So I wouldn't say he's I would have voted for him. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say he's necessarily opening eyes here, but just the fact that Altuve is well, succeeding on this stage, I think this kind of go, goes back to why we always lament the fact that Mike Trout is not in these games, because we know Mike Trout is amazing, too, but it's still something different to see it in the playoffs when maybe casual fans are paying attention, when the games are on national TV, when the games quote unquote matter more. And so it's a shame that the angels just can't put a contender around trout or even around trout and Simmons this year, who was also great. And so it's nice that we get to see at least some of the best players in baseball playing in the most important moments. And Altuve is one of those best players. I I don't know if he's underappreciated at all the way that trout is, but there is no way to overestimate how good he is really so this is a treat he said he's not opening eyes but like sort of going back to uh when mal and ryan did their mm-hmm. like 10 things for the casual fan uh podcast last week they like they were, ryan was talking saying something to 
along the lines of like you know yeah. does his dad know who this person is and you know you and i know you know every second baseman in the league you know we know that jose altuve is a top 10 at the very very mm-hmm. outside uh player in baseball but i just like i don't know that ryan o'hanlon's dad knows who jose altuve is and i think that that's a big it, you know it's just a big leap not only like because the astros I mean, as big as Houston is, it's sort of an overlooked baseball market. Yeah, and Altuve's first few years, of course, the Astros were atrocious. Yeah, he's not even close to the biggest star on that team. I think he's the best player on that team. But like, you know, every, more people know who Verlander is. More people know who Correa sure. is. You know, I, I don't know. You might even, I might even say that George Springer is more visible than Jose Altuve, which I swear is not a short joke. Uh, but <laughs> like, he is. He's up there with Francisco Lindor uh, in terms of just not only being great, but being like having like an infectious energy, like, Mm -hmm. you know, that Lindor Bryce Harper type of, you know, type of entertaining baseball player. And it's just one thing seeing a lot of him up close over the past couple of years. It's like he's so much better than I thought he was. And he's so much more fun to watch Mm -hmm. uh, when when you see him a lot. And I'm happy that that he's sort of getting. And after that three home run game, you know, uh, Cray was was and Alex Bregman just couldn't stop talking about him. And and he seemed really pleased with himself. So I'm you know, I'm happy with Mm -hmm. or I'm happy that that he's getting this sort of attention. So the other thing uh, about Altuve is it was very fun to so because he hit those three home runs in game one they show the hitters ops on the the scoreboard at minute Maid park it was very mm-hmm. very fun to see for like two whole days an ops that started with three points yeah <laughs> right yeah it's hard to assess the national profile of players i find especially when you're kind of in the baseball analysis bubble that we're in i trust your perception of these things since you're in Houston, but I would have said that Altuve has a higher profile than Correa or or Springer. I hope that's the case because he certainly deserves to have one at this point in his career. Springer, maybe not. Definitely not Correa. Really? Huh? Yeah, I think Correa's definitely got just because he was like the the new guy when they... Sure. um, And probably the, you know, he might add a better season than than Altuve the first time uh, they made the playoffs. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I think that he's sort of be, and he was the number one pick and like, he's, he's sort of been groomed to be that, that superstar. And Altuve is just sort of like, he's there because he's just, you know, he's been around the longest he's, you know, he became that player, maybe not necessarily Mm -hmm. by design. All right. So let's take a quick break and then we'll be back to talk about the national league. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I want to tell you about the Ringers Gambling Podcast. It is called Against All Odds with Cousin Sal, and you're not going to believe this, but it is hosted by Cousin Sal, the biggest degenerate gambler that I know. He's such a degenerate. He has three other degenerates that he calls the degenerate trifecta, and they break down every conceivable gambling thing you would ever want to gamble on. They even take you to Captain Morgan's Make Believe Casino, where Sal makes up props on, on all kinds of things, sports, pop culture, you name it. You are going to want to get your gambling advice from these guys. Cousin Sal, he's been a staple on the BS podcast for the last 10 years. So good that we gave him his own podcast. Check it out, Against All Odds with Cousin Sal. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so like I was saying, blah, 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 Clayton (laughs) Kershaw pitching playoffs. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, look, neither of us wants to talk about it. I think, to be fair, we have to at least acknowledge because... Up to a certain point, the argument, I think, was really just that he hadn't pitched any worse, right? Because I think the way that he was used started on short rest and having no bullpen support, etc. Those are all mitigating factors, I think. But at a certain point, you do have to acknowledge, okay, his postseason stats are worse. We, We can't obscure that fact. And I think maybe his strikeout rate is actually higher in the playoffs, but everything else is worse. And you would expect it to be somewhat worse just because you're facing better teams. But at a certain point, you have to acknowledge, okay, he's been worse. Now, what does that say about him, if anything? And that's where I won't go. I'm not going to say that he has some kind of weakness that makes Clayton Kershaw nervous in the playoffs. He's Clayton Kershaw. What would he ever be afraid of? I I don't buy it. He is such an intense competitor. He is so successful. He has no reason to doubt himself. And 
I think that it is the lack of bullpen support in recent years. It is the fact that he's been pushed farther, further than maybe he had to be in certain games. You could even, I suppose, make that case about game one of this series where things unraveled for him a, a bit more toward the tail end of his start. And, you know, I think it's that. And I think it's the short rest assignments. It's also this year and last year, the fact that he is probably not 100% at this point in the year. And we've seen his stuff does not seem to be all the way back since he returned from his back injury. And this is a long-term concern for him. You have to wonder now that he's had back issues in back-to-back years. I'm saying back a lot at times when I'm not actually He's had a week back since about a week back. (laughs) But it's a a concern long-term and it's also a concern short-term. And when you look at the collective numbers 10 years from now, you might not remember, oh, he had a back issue that year. He had missed some time early in the season and was not fully recovered from that. It just looks like, oh, he's worse. But, you know, I, I think there are physical concerns at this point and he pitched well enough. The Dodgers got the win, but he didn't per- pitch particularly well. And we can acknowledge that, I think, without ascribing yeah. some deeper importance to it. We're not in denial about the fact that he has pitched worse. It's just what does that mean for how he will pitch going forward and and how do we explain why he has pitched worse? To to look back on it, you have to like you can make excuses for the the time the Phillies roughed him up when he was when he was twenty one and you know he's been hurt and he's been on short rest and oh it's just one bad start. But that's sort of like you know, you're you got to want it. And, you know, now through 95 and a third career playoff innings, he has a 463 ERA, which is fine, but it's not Kershaw. Right. So I think the the difference is not like denying that he's pitched badly. It's the difference in expectation on whether that, in, you know, impacts how you think he's going to pitch going right. forward, whether he's still obviously the best pitcher in baseball. Is he the first pitcher that, that you would take to to start a postseason game? And the one that really got a bug up my ass about it was the Kershaw versus Madison Bumgarner thing at the mm. the height of Bumgarner mania. Yeah, the degree to which Kershaw. I mean, no, we're not going to relitigate that right now. <laughs> no. That's just no, uh, I, like I, I could just see the clock ticking and, <laughs> on 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 Zencaster. It's like we don't we don't have time to do this right now. I expect him to pitch well in game five or game one of the NLCS, whenever his next Mm -hmm. uh, appearance is. And I almost said I could feel myself thinking myself into a place where I was going to make the pitching to the score argument, and I'm not going to do it. (laughs) So you pitched well (laughs) enough to win. The Dodgers are up 2-0. It doesn't look like the Diamondbacks are like, this is one of those series. This one in the first two games of the Boston series, it just didn't look it like it looked like a cycling race where one guy just doesn't have the gas to mm-hmm. stay, you know, to stay with the, the other guy going up the mountain. And it's just it like the 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 riding the the degree to which the Dodgers have rode the Diamondbacks off their wheel essentially is uh, is pretty astounding. Mm-hmm. And that you know, I say this as somebody who was really high on the Diamondbacks yeah. going into these playoffs. I thought they were going to give the Dodgers a lot more trouble than they have. Yeah, it's a really tough matchup for them. I think against any of the other NL playoff teams remaining. I don't know that I would have picked the Diamondbacks over them, but man, it would have been close. It would have been basically a, a draw in my mind. And the Dodgers were the only one I thought that just matched up so well with the Diamondbacks that just everything the Diamondbacks do well, which is a lot of things, the Dodgers do a little bit better or mm-hmm. significantly better in some cases. There's a reason why the Dodgers were much better than the Diamondbacks over the course of six months. And that's showing here. And obviously, we know the Diamondbacks are capable of beating the Dodgers. They've done it in the regular season very recently. And it goes back to kind of the arbitrary nature of how we crown champions in baseball. And that's hits home even more obviously when you see one team kind of trounce another team in September, but that doesn't really count. But then they come back in October and suddenly there's this larger significance attached to that series. It's sort of silly in a way. You just have to accept that that's the way the playoffs work in baseball. But Diamondbacks are a really good team and one of the best stories of the season, of course, with their turnaround. And yeah, they've just been a bit outclassed here. And they haven't played that badly either. I, no. you know, just it, it's Tywin Walker got crushed in mm-hmm. game one. That's like the, that's really the only thing that's 
it's really stuck out to me as being just conspicuously bad from the Diamondbacks. Even Robbie Ray got beat up a little bit in game two, mm-hmm. but he was sort of, you know, wild, which is if Robbie Ray is going to be bad, then that's how that's how Robbie Ray is going to be bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they've still got uh, Zach Greinke going in game three. So that's, you know, that's who I'd want on the mound if I were them in, mm-hmm. in this situation. So you know, I think it's a little bit fortuitous that their their rotation shook out that way. So. As much as the rotation matters anymore, I think that <laughs> right. they're sort of, you know, I, I think my optimism about Arizona was grounded in like thinking that they'd get five or six innings out of the, out of their starter every time out, and then like if you even get five, you can get two out of Bradley, you can get one out of Rodney, you can sort of Jimmy Shervey and Andrew Chafe and the rest together and sort of figure it out from there. But if you need six or seven, and this is what I talked about with the Cubs versus the Yankees, for instance, is did just you it's not good you used to need a closer and now you need a closer and now you need half a dozen knockout middle relievers and even then as the Yankees saw in game two of their series they get knocked around and and just beaten up sometimes so it's there's almost less pressure on the starter but you just need so much more pitching than you used to yeah and in a way I mean we've talked about how some teams are particularly well constructed for the playoffs the Yankees being the most notable example and speaking of closers it looks like Aroldis Chapman is over his midseason issues but the Diamondbacks are a team that was very well built for the regular season in a way because they had such a deep starting rotation just five well above average starters even after they lost Shelby Miller and That's not as huge an advantage in the playoffs because some of those guys are not going to get to start. You're going to have to just sit them or put them in the bullpen. And the Diamondbacks don't have quite as deep a bullpen collection as some teams do. So this is a team that, if anything, is maybe hurt by the weird way in which we play postseason baseball. So one thing I got wrong was I was kind of worried about the Cubs rotation. They... Their rotation is pitched better than anybody else's in baseball so far. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Kyle Hendricks was nails in game one. John Lester was good in game two. They ought to have been up to nothing on the road, just the the way their starters pitch. But here was the the Carl Edwards, Mike Montgomery two-headed monster coming back to, to bite him. Yep. So you wanted to talk about sort of this decision making, how all that came together, whether I don't know that I would have done anything differently if I were Joe Madden. So Yeah, I mean, this takes a, a distant backseat, I suppose, to Joe Girardi's non-challenge in the annals of managerial mistakes here. It's very rare in this day and age that you can look at something a manager and do- does and say, no, that's like wrong. Right. You know, like that's it's it's very unusual that uh, that you could say that about a manager. And, you know, I would not only sort of let Uh, let Madden off the hook a little bit, but I probably would have done the same thing. Yeah, so the controversy here, Harper, of course, was coming up in a big spot, left-handed hitter. Edwards was in. He is a right-handed pitcher. He has been extremely effective against left-handed hitters. In fact, has a career reverse split, I believe, has been better against lefties. But Mike Montgomery was warming, was ready. He is, of course, a lefty. And so the question was, which do you use? Do you bring in Montgomery, turn Harper around? Because Harper is worse against left-handed pitchers. And Madden opted to stick with Edwards, and Harper made him pay with a home run, showed that he has his timing back. So that was, uh, I think, a fairly widely criticized decision, but it's not as conclusive, certainly, as the Girardi case we discussed earlier. You know, you there's obviously an advantage to turning Harper around or or having him face the side he is worse against. But Edwards is not someone who gets eaten up by lefties. And you could even make the case that he's just maybe more of an effective pitcher overall. Of course, Montgomery did come in later in the game to face the other tough left. Right. Yes. There are two things that like we really harp on. I guess is statty people that I think are are overrated, and one is a platoon advantage. I like. I say this is the world's biggest Brandon Geyer fan that, like, in a lot of cases, you just want your best pitcher out there, and I think in that situation. You know, having said that, maybe Wade Davis is the guy that you bring. Well, I don't know. 
Edwards came in to start the eighth and you're you're leading. You don't bring in Davis to to start that inning. But Edwards is is such a better strikeout pitcher than Montgomery. And I almost don't want to take the chance with with Harper even putting the ball in play. And I think Edwards is going to give you a better chance against Harper, even with a right on left thing, because like you said, he's. I could see there being a platoon advantage even with Edwards having the reverse split just because, you know, Harper's the way Harper picks up the ball is part of the equation, too. It's not just Edwards stuff. But if Edwards is your is one of your eighth inning guys, you're going to bring him in there knowing that you're going to face Harper before you face Rendon, that you're going to face Murphy before you face Zimmerman and Worth, then I'm okay with leaving him in there and trying to get the strikeout. And I just think this is a danger of Carl Edwards and Mike Montgomery sort of not being Tommy Canley and Dallin Batances, right. for instance, or mm-hmm. you know, whatever pair of knockout middle relievers you want to use. Yes, that was part of our our prop bets too, right? That yeah, they would come we got, in with we got Mike on. Montgomery coming in with a man on base, so we're halfway home. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and you know, this has been a fairly even series. It's it's not at at one and you were mentioning to me earlier, Trey Turner is over eight so far. He is obviously an important part of the Nationals offense. And when he is going well, it makes their lineup just look so deep and so intimidating. It's hard to remember really that they've lacked Adam Eaton for basically the whole season. You put mm-hmm. Adam Eaton in the middle of this lineup, it's even scarier. Yeah, this is like if if Eaton's in this lineup, it's like Astros level deep. Yes. Just in terms of not having any easy outs. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I guess Matt Weeders is your one easy out right now. Yeah, right. But, and, and Zimmerman, of course, hit the big home run to win it. And, you know, Harper got going with this home run. There was some question about his health. There was a question about Turner's health because he had missed some time, too. And then, of course, there was a question about Max Scherzer's health. And we're going to get the answer to that question very soon. Yeah, I don't think he, I don't think he's 100%, but I think he's close enough. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, short of being physically incapable of throwing the ball, he's going to, you know, he's going to make a start this series and yeah, I wonder he's I think his stuff's so good that even if his command is kind of off, then then he's still a better option than Tanner Roark or whoever else you might start. Uh I you know, I like Washington's chances. I'm Shockingly, I like Washington's chances with <laughs> with Max Scherzer on the mound. Yeah, right. All right. Well, I will be at Yankees Indians Game Four in the Bronx tonight. I imagine you will be at Game Five in the other AL series if there is one, if necessary. Right. Otherwise, yeah. Next time it comes back to Houston. Mm-hmm. So, so, so our next pod is going to be on Thursday, and the two games scheduled for Thursday are the game five, games five for. Uh, for the two National League series. Do you think we're going to be previewing uh, Division Series action? Uh, I would guess not. I would guess that these series get wrapped up in four, but would not at all be surprised if they do go five. But we'll be talking presumably about... I think Cubs-Nats goes five. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, That could definitely happen. Yeah. I'm I'm thinking about AL right now just because there are deficits there, but Cubs-Nats still tied. I don't think there's a clear edge, but... Yeah, we will be back on Thursday and we will have a lot more to talk about by then, whether it is division series action or previewing the championship series. Yeah, or both. we're going to have more prop bets. <laughs> yeah, so. probably. All right. So you have been listening to the Ringer MLB show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Enjoy the baseball. We'll talk to you later this week. 